Our text is the 11th Psalm. So if you are, please turn back with me in your, in your copies of God's Word to that text. Dothan was a hamlet. It was hardly even a village. But one morning, they woke up, and the entirety of that hamlet was surrounded by all of the might of Syria. The Syrian forces had camped out the previous night on a very simple errand. They had heard that there was a prophet of God dwelling there, and that that prophet had upset Syrian geopolitics more than once. And so they had come to put away the troublemaker. That prophet had a servant, and that servant woke up that morning with the rest of that hamlet, and he looked out, and quite obviously he was struck with terror. The cry on his lips was, Alas, Master, what shall we do? As far as human contemplation could take him, the situation was perilous, hopeless. Perhaps you remember what Elisha does. After he tells the young man that more are they that are for us than are against us, he then falls to his knees and he pleads with God, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. What he recognizes the prophet immediately knows that there is more strength, more security in God than there is might and malice in his enemies. The prophet knows that, but he knows that God must open the eyes of his servant to see that himself. A friend, in so many ways, the scriptures come to us in one text after another, urging us to look as this servant of the prophet was to look. Our psalm is no different. The 11th psalm is very much a clarion cry to see things as they really are. I know I've used that analogy now many times, but I think it's so very crucial for understanding. Crucial for us to understand not only the word of God, but how to apply the word of God aright. Certainly our text this evening is one of those many texts that, like the prophet, encourages us to see aright. That indeed in the Lord, his people have a sure refuge, notwithstanding all that they see about them. But how the psalmist brings us to that point is rather striking. In the first verse, he begins with something of a confession of faith. In the Lord put I my trust. But then there's something that follows that's rather rather striking. He says, how say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain. It's curious, this first line. Obviously, the first first part of this verse is is certainly a a clear statement that the psalmist's confidence is in God. but, But what follows is perhaps the curious piece. What the psalmist is saying there is, because I trust in God, why do you say to me, flee? Now it's curious at least for two reasons. The first reason is, I suppose, the interlocutors. The people to whom the psalmist says this. He says this to friends, not to enemies. These are those who are counseling David at this point to flee, and manifestly the purpose of this flight is to preserve his life. And yet, at this second part of this first verse, he tenders to them something of a rebuke. They're urging him to to preserve himself through lawful means, and yet he rebukes them. 
And again, friend, the second element that's quite curious about this is the council materially is actually quite lawful. They're urging the psalmist to flee, which is a lawful means of self-preservation. God, at several junctures, commands his prophets to flee from their enemies. God commanded through his angel, Mary and Joseph, to to avert themselves from, from Herod's gaze and wrath. And of course, many times David himself does take flight. And neither the prophets Samuel or Nathan rebuke him for doing so. And yet the psalmist rebukes them for commanding him to do something, counseling him to do something that is otherwise lawful. They are calling him to, with all careful studies and lawful endeavors, to preserve his own life. Precisely what is commanded of the sixth in the Decalogue. So why the rebuke? Why this rebuke? Well, the answer, friend, is quite straightforward. First of all, I want you to notice the manner in which they counsel David to take flight. It is to fly as a bird. We could quickly overlook that, but I think it's quite significant as the scriptures record this detail for us. They're calling him to flee like an irrational creature. Not like a man. Not like one who knows that there's a God in heaven. Not like one who has received precious promises from the Lord of all the earth. No, flee like a bird. What you see here is that their counsel is really flowing from despair and in many ways is atheistical. Their counsel is is coming from a sense of hopelessness. If you remember back to the third psalm, these friends could be saying what the psalmist's enemies say there. Many there be that say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. That's the kind of counsel they're tendering to the psalmist here. You need to flee as though there is no help for you in God. And what you see then in this 11th Psalm is really the psalmist's reply to that kind of counsel. In the first three verses, the psalmist himself in many ways reiterates the situation. Verses 1 to 3 really give us a picture of the perilous condition in which he finds himself. He affirms everything that his friends themselves acknowledge. But then, verses 4 to the end, you find the psalmist corrective. This is the ground for the rebuke of verse 1. Perhaps it is seemingly a perilous condition. But these friends need a corrected perspective. And that's provided for us at the end of our text. In many ways, what you see here is the psalmist doing precisely what Elisha did for his servant. The psalmist comes to his friends who were members of the visible church. And really, he is imploring them to see. To see right. As such, friend, the psalm corrects all counsel. All policy. All thought. That is driven more by fear than by faith. The psalmist, as it were, not only is addressing his own particular situation, but as the inspired penman, here the Spirit of God comes to us and urges all atheistical despair to flee from the godly. And it does that by reminding us that divine righteousness and judgment are encouragements to them. 
divine righteousness and judgment encourage the godly. And I want us to see that under three headings this evening. I want us to see, first of all, the, the insecurity, the apparent perilous condition that the psalmist finds himself in. I want us to see his insight that he provides for us at the end of this psalm. And I also want us to see how the psalmist reflects on his own interest in the promises of God. So take, first of all, the insecurity that's communicated to us here. It really flows from that second line of the first verse to the end of the third. He begins by saying, in verse 2, that the wicked bend their bow. Their arrow is upon the string. The imagery is that, perhaps, of a warrior, but I think, I think more accurately, the, the picture you and I should have here is a hunter. And the reason why is because the psalmist has already been likened to a bird. The idea is that these ones stand in readiness and they have ability to strike at the psalmist. They are, as it were, stalking his every move. They have the instruments at their disposal. They are ready to exact all of their evil designs upon him. And then he says this, they, they privily shoot at the upright. And, and literally, in the original, the idea is they shoot in darkness. Under cloak of night, they go about their hunting. And here, obviously, you and I are supposed to have the idea that not only are they ready and able, they are the epitome of ruthlessness and cunning. They show no mercy. And they're quite wise, quite adept in their abilities at persecution. And then in that third verse, you find something more. In our translations, the text reads, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's, it's a difficult verse in the original, difficult to translate. And so there are so many various translations that you can have for this text. But that which seems to be closest to the original is actually what you and I have in our 1650 Psalter where the first line of this third verse is actually rendered as something that has already happened. It's not a conditional conjunctive. It's actually saying that this has already occurred. The foundations are destroyed or overthrown. In other words, what the psalmist is doing here is he's saying that, that such is the design of the wicked, such is their ability, and such is their use of these difficult providences, that the foundations do seem to be overthrown. The foundations of good, justice, right, the cause of God, all of those things are now laid in the dust. And then he comes to that question, and then what, what can then the righteous do? Very much, I suppose, like Elisha's servant. Alas, master, what shall we do? What you see then in verses 2 and 3 is that the situation of the psalmist is quite, in human terms, a perilous condition. You see here that the ungodly are ready, they're able, they're ruthless, they're cunning, and the extent of their devastation, the success of their evil, seems to have overthrown the foundations of all hope. This is an incredibly bleak picture of the psalmist's situation. Uh, this is not poetry, friend, for the sake of, of simply making use of language in a vain or vapid way. This is supposed to communicate to us a very real 
a very dark situation in which the psalmist found himself. It's a very bleak picture. And this first first section really is the psalmist's affirmation that things are difficult. That in human terms, these things are certainly, certainly indications of a perilous situation. And I suppose for our own meditations this evening, it's important to see how these verses teach us that the ungodly are at times enabled. And in fact, they do prevail in many ways. This is something that belongs to the experience of the church. It is not abnormal for the believer as an individual, for the church collectively to find themselves in such a context. The scriptures are full of such examples. I mean, I want you to notice, friend, that that even the Apostle Paul, not only did he face these kinds of persecutions outside of the church, but you remember what he says in Philippians 1. He says, some preach of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Now, I suppose we could quickly read over that, and you may say, well, what's the connection to this? I want you to notice what the Apostle is saying. He's saying that there are some who are so able and so ruthless, so cunning, and so willing to take advantage of a difficult providence as it were, to try to afflict him, even while he's in prison. And he's saying that that is even coming to, to him from professing believers. And you see, friend, that, that then this is something that belongs to the experience of the Christian, both inside and outside the visible church. I want you to notice that it's often the case, friend, that as the apostle himself describes for us, he says that they are, we are like pressed out of measure, above strength. And even the apostle says at this moment, he says, insomuch that we despaired even of life, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. 2 Corinthians 1. Friend, as you read throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testaments alike, what you recognize is that this 11th Psalm and these, several, these first several verses therein are really communicating to us something that is part and parcel with the psalmist, with the Christian's experience. This is normal. We could go even a step further. This experience where it seems that the ungodly are in many ways prevailing. Friend, not only is it normal, but, but it's actually to be expected. I want you just to hear for a moment how Kelvin describes this. He says, our course in the world as Christians is like a dangerous sailing between many rocks and exposed to many storms and tempests. And thus no one arrives at port except he who has escaped from a thousand deaths. For that, says Calvin here, is supposed to be the Christian's experience. Like a bird, hunted and as it were flitting from one branch to another as he dodges the arrows of his persecutors. What's striking is that comment from Calvin comes from a text that speaks not principally of persecutions without, but of temptations within. Where you remember Peter tells us that the righteous man is scarcely saved. Both inward and outward experiences of the believer are, as it were, so many thousands of deaths, where one might conclude, as the psalmist's interlocutors certainly do in our text, that the situation is hopeless. Now, friend, what I want you to notice in this text 
It is not that there is any ground for despair. What I want you to notice in this text, that this very bleak picture, the godly are told time and time again, is to be expected. If you and I see this in our own lives individually, and if we see this as certainly we ought to in the church in Northern Ireland, in the Western Hemisphere, friend, we shouldn't be surprised. This is always has been the experience of the people of God. It is ordinary for the godly to seem insecure and defeated. Now that's the apparent insecurity. I want you to see the insight now that the psalmist provides to his friends. It begins there in the fourth verse where he says, the Lord is in his holy temple. And then he concludes his meditation in a way by saying, he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, a horrible tempest, and so forth upon his enemies. Now that is the reply to those who are counseling him to flee like a bird at the end of verse 1. This is his corrective. This is his moment in which he says, put on the spectacles and see aright for the first time. What I want you to notice, friend, is that in this text, he's also instructing us that the godly are encouraged chiefly by divine immutability and judgment. The godly are encouraged throughout the Psalter by many themes, but the two that the psalmist centers on in Psalm 11 are divine immutability and judgment. And at this point, you should see that the psalmist, as it were, is looking. He's looking, as it were, at a timeline. And he's looking at two points on that timeline simultaneously. He's looking at the present and he's looking at the future. And he's looking at these two now and he's drawing upon the comfort that he finds in those two points for the present crisis. I want you to notice what he sees in the present. It's in that fourth verse. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord has his throne in heaven. Now, friend, I want you to notice that this fourth verse is something that you and I ought to linger on because I think this is a point of divinity, practical divinity, that we, we don't spend much time meditating upon. I want you to see just for a moment how very different the context of verse 3 is from this fourth verse. The third verse is nothing seemingly but a picture of desolation and overthrow. The fourth verse, these first two lines, are a picture of perfect serenity. The juxtaposition couldn't be starker. The contrast couldn't be greater. What you and I are supposed to see here is that the psalmist contemplates a God whose throne the arrows of his enemies cannot reach. He contemplates a God who cannot be touched by the engines, the devices of the wicked. And friend, you and I should should really spend time thinking about this. Because this is where the psalmist says your corrective begins. You need to meditate upon a throne that is utterly higher than the reach of your enemies. It all looks like chaos and desolation around you. That may very well be. But in, throne there, but in the throne of heaven, there is nothing but peace, serenity, security. And I want you to notice, friend, that what you see in this text is that the psalmist is looking to God's existence and his immutability in the very first step, and he's drawing comfort from that. 
He's going to say more to us, but we should note that he begins there. Friend, it should be a comfort in itself for us just to meditate on the fact that ours is an unchanging God. Untouched by the devices of the wicked. They may be never so victorious on the field of battle. They may be never so powerful in the schemes of this world. Geopolitics may seem always to go in their favor. Affliction may only seem to be the portion of the godly. But, says the psalmist, there is a God in heaven and his throne is settled and secured. And surely that should elicit comfort from his people. Just to know that there, the devices of the wicked could never reach. You know what's striking, friend? This is a part, as I've already said, a part of practical divinity we don't meditate on, but it's something that's right throughout the scriptures. If you go back to Psalm 102, you'll notice that that's precisely the point that the psalmist centers himself upon. You remember that 102nd Psalm reflects much on on the desolation of Zion. But at the end of that Psalm, he he looks to the God who, who is unchanging and who changes, as it were, the cosmos as a vesture. And that's the final note of of Psalm 102. And some people may say, well, why is that a comforting thing? Well, friend, there are many reasons for that, but you and I should recognize that it's a comforting thing to know in and of itself. If you love God, if you delight that He is God, that He is altogether good and that His glory is untarnishable, by the devices of the wicked. And friend, even in the midst of great desolations, there's a comfort there for you. But the second element that the psalmist draws our attention toward is, is that of what is to come. I said to you that he's looking to something present, namely he's looking to a throne in perfect serenity. But then he is also looking secondly to what God will accomplish, and that is that upon the wicked he shall rain snares. It's striking. The idea of a snare there should be kept in the original. Some have translated otherwise simply because it doesn't seem to fit the context. It does fit the context. What you find here is that these ones who are, as as it were, hunting a bird are now caught in a snare themselves. It's the very self-same idea that you have in Psalm 11 as well as in Psalms 9 and 10. They're caught in their own devices. What you see here is then the psalmist is already enjoying, as it were, the benefits of knowing that victory is assured. And he goes on to describe the end of the wicked as being the portion of their cup. He looks at divine judgment in this case as being that which is their allotted, their due portion, and that it will be received in the end. I want you to notice, I want you to notice how he describes the end of the wicked for a moment. He says that it's their portion, the portion of their cup. It's a striking turn of phrase, especially in its context, because what the psalmist is saying is this is that, and only that, which they are entitled to. That's how he sees his enemies in the present. This and this only is their portion. Anything else that they have is only by divine forbearance and as it were through an act of usurpation. This is their portion. What you see here is then the psalmist very much is making use of future judgment. He's meditating upon it in the present 
And he's making it work to encourage his faith, even in the midst of duress. These are the insights that the psalmist brings to his friends. But the third and the final point that we bring on, that we bring our, our time to a close with is the psalmist's meditation on his own interest in these things. Now, if you look at the seventh verse, he begins by looking at the character of God. He says, the righteous Lord. And then he says, loveth righteousness. At the end of the seventh verse, he says that, he, that his countenance doth behold the upright. And what you recognize is the psalmist is saying that God, as he is altogether righteous, loves righteousness. He loves the righteous cause. What you also see in that seventh verse is that there is a disposition toward the godly that is one of great love. This is the psalmist's counsel toward the church. But you recognize, friend, that the psalmist and the church draw down upon this in a very direct way. Uh, First of all, they draw down upon this. They can draw down upon these truths for their own present comfort because if they do not suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters, then they suffer for the cause of Christ. Theirs is a righteous cause. And so the psalmist says, as they maintain godliness, and as they suffer for that, say, for that cause, they have reason to take heart. But as I've, I've sought to remind us as we come to these, these kinds of statements in the past, so allow me to remind you that this kind of righteousness that the psalmist has in view is an evangelical righteousness. It is not a righteousness of merit through the covenant of works. And even the 11th Psalm indicates as much. This is one who's endowed with faith, who's speaking to us here. He says, in the Lord put I my trust. Now friend, you and I could read that in one of two ways. I think often we read it in one way in which we say, well, this is the reason why the psalmist is not nervous. This is the reason why he's not fretting. In other words, this is an account for why he's peaceable in the midst of all of these difficulties. I don't think that's how we should read it at all. This first line is not so much a statement about the psalmist's disposition as it is his claim upon God's promises. Or to go even a step further, a statement of his interest in in the saving help of God. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Friend, why is it that he can say, in the Lord put I my trust, and then rebuke them for saying, or counseling him to act as though he had no hope? Friend, because the word of God has told him that those who trust him will not be put to shame. His faith has interested him in nothing less than all of the promises given to the godly. And so, friend, he sees his interest there, his interest in God's saving help by a vital faith. It is a faith which works, a faith that produces godliness. And, friend, he sees himself even presently entitled to that saving help. As we close, just very briefly, friend, this psalm is, again, supposed to be a corrective for the church, uh, both on an individual level and on a corporate. 
What you recognize is that this 11th Psalm urges us to look at the wicked, look at the enemies of God, as this Psalm instructs us to. And that is to see that the only portion that they have is wrath. Friend, they may draw breath. They may have a home. They may even on the field of battle enjoy a victory. They may seem to have all of the instruments and engines available to them to enact their plans. The only thing they're entitled to, that which is their only portion, is divine wrath. I wonder, friend, if we took that meditation with us into the workplace and into the place of education. I wonder how that would change our perspective with the people we meet. I wonder if it would give us a greater heart for evangelism. I also wonder if it would sober us against those temptations to worldly thoughts. The psalmist is making use of that reality in the present, and certainly so should we. But he also thinks of the godly in a very particular way. He's saying pointedly that the godly are presently secure. Let let the enemies of God seemingly prevail to no to no to to whatever degree they might. He says that they are secured because God's throne is settled in heaven. Friend, do you see the church of God as secure? Do you see the cause and interest of God in the Western Hemisphere as secure? The psalmist would counsel us to do so. And so the exhortation from this text, friend, is first of all to rest upon the divine word and not on appearances. That is the clarion call to his friends in this text. It's the call that the Lord would give to his church today. You and I rest upon his word, not how things seemingly appear. Secondly, you and I are exhorted to meditate upon God's immutability, his righteousness, his judgment, and we're to do so in such a way, friend, that we can draw down upon those truths in times of crisis. I'll just remind you, friend, that that work of meditation is necessary. You and I cannot draw upon water from a well that's not been digged. Uh, Friend, you and I need to be very earnest in going back to these themes, as it were, digging deeper and deeper, so that when the blasting rays of persecution and crisis come, we already know how to draw water, refreshment from these themes. Meditate on these themes. And then thirdly, of course, apply them to ourselves. That's precisely what the psalmist does. These are not just abstract theological notions for the psalmist. These are things upon which he hangs his life. Things that have a present bearing upon all that he thinks and does. And and friends, so should it be with us. We should apply these meditations to ourselves, to to others. It should permeate our thoughts, our words, and our actions. May it be then, friend, that as we leave this 11th psalm, that like Elisha's servant, the Lord would open our eyes to see that with the Lord indeed, there is nothing but security and serenity. Let our enemies be filled howsoever greatly with malice and might. Amen.